Good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. We are, we are uh, edging towards Christmas, aren't we? We are getting there, and I'm looking forward to this time of teaching with you today. I think Trish already mentioned, if, if she didn't, inside your note sheet, green and white message note, uh, note sheet. For those of you uh, joining us online, either top or the bottom, you may notice my voice is a little odd today. Uh, uh, how many have been sick in the last two weeks? How many of you? Yeah, that's kind of what all, every service has been, a lot of people. Uh, I got a cold about two weeks ago. I was over on Friday. I was ready to go back full-time workout, you know, heavy cardio, and I woke up and I had a new cold. So now I've got my second cold. It's like different symptoms. Um, so I'm hev- heavily drugged today. Um, I'm on a double dose of nighttime NyQuil, uh, and I have a triple dose of Robitussin cough syrup. So uh, whatever I say, I'm not held accountable. From from this point on, you just say, just remember that time when Michael was high and he was teaching and it was just amazing, you know? I wish he would just do that more often. Um, But anyway, so the only reason I mention that is if if I start coughing, I I think I'll do okay. I actually took a nap between services. So I feel, it's like good morning. It's just like great to be here with you. Uh, We're gonna go in, so are you guys ready to go? All right, let's go. Father, we're just so thankful to be in your house on your day and, and to be pursuing you in this Christmas season. Lord, as we come to this amazing passage uh, that just casts this huge vision for what it means to be one of your children, one of your people. God, this plan that was designed before time began and then brought together in time so that we can live it out in our time. God, we are excited about that. And I'm excited for this passage. I just pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would be here. You'd open our eyes and you'd raise our eyes to a new level for the story that you've called us to live in. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 Well, our story starts today when my daughters were young. You know, I have two two daughters who are now grown, but when they were uh, very young, uh, typically what would happen is about, you know, 8, 8.30, whatever is time, whatever the particular time, we'd send them, hey, it's time for bed, girls. And so they would go and they would brush their teeth and they'd get their pajamas on and then they'd climb into bed. And then it was time for me to go in. And sort of our routine often, this was a scene that would often play out, is that I would go in and I would tuck them in, give them a hug and kiss. They always want to read a story. And so I'd have them choose uh, one of their favorite bedtime stories, you know, one of their favorite books, and I would begin to read it. Now, for the girls, they had heard the same story, what, 50, 100 times? I mean, this is like, but you know how as little kids, they love the repetition of that. They, they love to, like, they're, they're just laying there, they're just loving the repetition, but as an adult who's wired to live in the future, I would get extremely bored. <laughs> And so at times, I would change the story. I would try to change it. I would add a few characters, maybe a little creative plot twist, uh, a little color to the story. Um, and, uh, and every time I would, the same thing would happen, that for about two or three seconds, I would get away with it. And then they would stop me, and they'd say the same thing every time. Well, today, we are continuing this series that we've been in forever. Uh, This is message number 22, and for those of you who are brand new here at Rocky Peak, whether it's your first time here on campus, maybe you're joining us online, uh, just a quick recap. The the series is called The Gospel of God, and 
And what this series is about is an in-depth study of one of the most important letters ever written in the history of the human race. No exaggeration, the impact it's had. It's in the second part of our Bibles, uh, the last third we'll talk about today, the last third called uh, the New Testament. And it was written by one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. Uh, he was initially uh, very opposed to the idea of Jesus. He was a violent persecutor of the early movement. But a couple years after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to him and he became a special messenger of Jesus, what we call an apostle. His name is the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to a group of Jesus followers that most of whom he's never met. They live in the capital city of the empire, the city of Rome, about a million people. He's planning to come and visit them in the near future. And so this is his way of introducing himself and his message to them. And so in the very opening letter, opening uh, statement, uh, sentence of the letter, he introduces the topic, which is the gospel of God, this big picture story uh, of God that he's going to be sharing with us in this letter. And so today we're going to pick up where I left off, not, not where Joel left off, not where Thomas and, Lee, uh, Thomas and Lita left off last week, but where I left off the last time I was with you a couple weeks ago in chapter three. But before we jump into this passage, we're going to need a little bit more background than normal. So there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called The Gospel of God, The Story of Israel. Now, how many of you know, realize that the Bible is a book written for adults? Do you realize that? Okay. Uh, the reason I mention that is often we think that understanding the Bible should be easy. It's written for adults. It's a very carefully, carefully written uh, book, and we have to kind of put on our big boy pants sometimes. We've got, we got to like really think along with the Apostle Paul. This is one of those days where we're going to have to, we're going to have to kind of sit up, pay attention that he's answering uh, some key questions or we're running around in the first century. And so we're gonna have to kind of uh, take off our 21st century glasses today, put on our first century glasses if we're gonna understand the passage. So can we do that together? We all, okay, so there in your notes, you have the section called the, the, the Gospel or the Story of Israel. So, so a little bit more background than normal. So if you're a Jew living in the first century, you're living in the time of Jesus, you're living in the time of the early church, you're living in the time of the Apostle Paul, somewhere in the Roman Empire, there's a question that very likely you have. And the question is, where are we at in our story? And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, if you're a Jew, the prophets of Israel had predicted that, that in spite of Israel's constant rebellion against God that led to their exile, the loss of their country, right? For like 500 to 700 years before the coming of Jesus. Then in spite of that, the prophets of Israel said that God still loved Israel. And one day he would bring them back to their homeland. He would return to his people, that his spirit would be poured out on the nation, that a new temple would be built, um, and that God would return and they would enter into this kind of golden age of Israel where they would be at the top and everyone else at the bottom. They would either rule the world, but the kingdom of God would come and it would be for Israel. Right? And the question is in the first century, if you're a Jew, is where are we at in this story? Because Israel, on the one hand, had returned to the nation, to their country. They were back in the land, but they were not they, they were not on top of the world. They were under the new superpower, Rome. Uh, the temple had been rebuilt, yes, but the Holy Spirit had never filled it like the temple of Solomon. And so where are we at? And so the Messiah hasn't come yet. Where are we at in our story? How is this story gonna come to its rightful end? So along comes the apostle Paul. 
And he says, actually, the Messiah has come. But when he came, he came to give his life for the sins of our nation and the sins of the world so that we could enter into a relationship with God based on our trust in the Messiah. And then one day he'll bring all things to its appointed end. And if you're a Jew, you're like, what? That's not how the story goes. And this, is how, this leads us back to the story I started the day with about my, my daughters. This would happen every time I would try to change the story. That I'd be reading along and I'd start adding some creating twists, some new, uh, some new characters, maybe uh, add a twisting ending. And for a couple seconds, they would let it go, but then they would stop and they'd say, Dad, that's not how the story goes, right? Like, no, they're not having it. That's not how the story goes. And that was exactly the reaction that many, if not most Jews had in the first century when Paul came. That no, 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 the Messiah doesn't get crucified. Messiah conquers. And when the kingdom of God comes, it's not for the whole world, it's for Israel. We have the law of God. We have the, the covenant of circumcision. We're the chosen people. The kingdom's for Israel. It's not for the whole world. And so wherever Paul would go, he'd have to say, wait a second. You're misreading your whole story. That this story with its surprise ending it may be a surprise to you, but it was actually predicted in your scriptures all along. And so wherever Paul would go, he would have to answer these questions for Jews like, oh, wait a second, we thought we were in the kingdom because we were the chosen people and he gave us a sign of circumcision and then we had the law and because of that, we're gonna be part of this kingdom and the Gentiles are gonna be destroyed or wiped out. And Paul would say, no, 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 let me re-explain this story why he gave you circumcision, why he gave you the law, what that was all about. And so in the passage, two passages we're looking at today, Paul is really responding to these questions that wherever he would go, he would need to respond, not just for Jews, but for Gentile believers, because Gentile believers are surrounded by a Jewish community saying, that's not how the story goes. Jesus is not really the Messiah. So the Gentile believers needed to understand how the story of Jesus fit into the story of Israel, as well as the Jews. And so with that as an intro today, we're going to jump into two passages. So if you, you may remember when Joel was here a couple of weeks ago, he taught in chapter four. So the last time I taught, we went through the middle of chapter three, and then Joel skipped over the end of chapter three to chapter four. And so we're gonna go and we're gonna, we're gonna finish up chapter three and then we're gonna jump into the middle of chapter four because both of these passages deal with some of these same questions. How does the story of Jesus the Messiah fit into the larger story of the story of Israel? All right, so let's jump in. So there in your note sheet, you have a section called the gospel of God, one way and one people. So we're going to pick it up at chapter 3 and verse uh, 27. Now, what Paul has been saying, uh, and this is what I was teaching on the last time I was here, is that in the previous paragraph, one of the most important paragraphs in all the Bible, and what Paul is saying is that what we've now been, we realize through the gospel is that God has made clear how our relationship with God works, that since all have sinned, both Jews and Gentiles, and fallen short of the glory of God, 
kind of what we were supposed to be, that God has sent his son to provide atonement for our sin so that we are able to enter into relationship, not by our works, our resume, our performance, but by trust in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That's the context. And so in verse 20, um, in verse 27, he says, so well, where then is boasting? Of course, if you were a Jew, you would boast, I'm part of the chosen people. Uh, I, we received the circumcision, we received uh, the law of God and so on. And he says, and that's why we'll be part of the kingdom. And he says, well, where there is boasting? Well, it's excluded. There's no more room for a human pride or boasting in the kingdom. And he says, be, because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because the law that requires faith. For we maintain, as, as leaders of Jesus, you know, as, we maintain that a person is justified by faith. We're made right with God by our trust in Jesus. And it's apart from the works of the law. It's apart from our performance or our resume. And he says, or is God the God of the Jews only? And of course, this was Israel. You know, God is our God. The kingdom is for us. He says, wait a second. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? He says, yes, of Gentiles too. And since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the Jews by faith and the uncircumcised Gentiles through the same faith. And he says, well, do, the, do we then nullify the law by this faith? He says, Are, is this message that I'm bringing about the Messiah, is the Messiah nullifying the law? And Paul's going to say, no, not at all. And he'll talk more about this when we get to chapter seven. But basically what he's going to say is the law was a beautiful thing. It was this gift of God to kind of, remember the Torah, the instruction to mark the path to life. But what happened in actuality is that when God gave Israel the law, which remember what Jesus said, the law could be summarized by loving God and loving people, that all it showed is how broken we are as a race and how much we need a savior. So the message of the Messiah doesn't nullify the law, it upholds the law. They're complementary. The law leads us to the need for the Messiah. Now, let's jump down to the next passage in chapter four, and we'll pick it up at verse nine. So if you're here the week that Joel taught two weeks ago, what Paul does uh, at the beginning of chapter four, the part that he's already taught on, Joel's already taught on, is that Paul says, hey, this new way, what, what seems like a new way of coming to God through faith in the Messiah alone and his death, it's actually not new. That this is the way God's people have always come to him, by trust in his grace. And he says, let me give you a couple examples. Let me talk about two of the greatest heroes of our faith. Abraham, the father of the Jewish race, and King David, the great king through whom the Messiah would come. He says, they related to God by faith in the same way that we do now through the Messiah. And so he says, for example, and remember he goes back to, to Genesis chapter 15, and we'll talk about this later, and he quotes from Genesis 15 where Abraham believed God and it was cred credited to him as righteousness, right? So he talks about Abraham paving the way, and then he talks about David, and he quotes from Psalm 32, and that's there in your note sheet, in verse, I mean on your Bible in verse seven and eight, where David, King David, after his great sin, he said, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never account against them. What's the path to blessing? How do we come into a blessed relationship with God? He says, David knew it wasn't through his works. It was through his trust in God's grace. And so now building on that, he says, well, here's verse nine. 
is this blessedness, this, this new relationship of blessing, uh, blessing, living under the blessing, is it only for circumcised or also for uncircumcised? So he's speaking to the story of Israel question. Oh, Paul, are you saying that it, this new relationship with God through our Messiah, is it only for Israel? Is this blessing only for Israel or does it include Gentiles too? And Paul is going to go back to the story of Abraham and in a brilliant way show that if you follow the story, the answer is right there. So follow along with me. In the story of Abraham, we're going to go on a timeline here. In Genesis chapter 15, you remember this from a couple weeks ago, uh, Abraham's in his mid-80s. He doesn't have any children. He and his wife have not been able to have children. And God takes him outside one night. And he says, look at the stars, Abraham. He said, as many as the stars, that's how many descendants that you're going to have. And we're told in Genesis 15, 6, the references on your note sheet, it says, and Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. In other words, he was, he was entered into a right relationship with God because of his belief in the promise, okay? not because of his behavior. He's in his 80s, Okay. We're going to go down two chapters in about 14 years. We're now at Genesis chapter 17. Abraham is now 99. He still doesn't have a child. And God comes to him and says, not only are you going to be a father of a great nation, you're going to be the father of many nations. And he says, as a sign of my promise, I'm giving you the sign of circumcision. Okay, he's 99 years old. Now, this is interesting. I know that Joel mentioned this, but you know, if it were me, I'd be saying, do you have any other signs? Uh, <laughs> like Noah got the rainbow. <laughs> wow, this is a, okay, so, so Paul says, hey, let's think this through. Is this blessing? of being made right through the death of the Messiah. Is it only for circumcised Jews or is it for uncircumcised too? He says, well, just read the story. Abraham was made right with God back here in his 80s, long before he received the circumcision. He says it wasn't until like 14 years later when he's 99, he's given the sign of circumcision, which was a sign of the righteousness he had way back there. So for example, this is the way a wedding ring works. Like if you're not married and you put a ring on your left, on your left hand, right? Fourth finger, whatever. And you put it on, does that make you married? No. Uh, if I take this off, which I can't, it's like welded to me. <laughs> but if I take off my wedding ring, does it make me unmarried? No, it's a sign of a status that I had because I got married to Lynn almost 48 years ago, right? Right? <laughs> yeah. Wow. How did that happen, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, we got married. I was 12. She was 14. It's Arkansas. It's all legal. Yeah. So anyway, so, so Paul says, hey, wait a second. Is this gift of right relationship with God through trust in the Messiah? Is it just for Jews or is it, for, or for, uh, is it just for circumcised people, Jews? Or is it for, he goes, well, follow the story. This was given to Abraham when he was uncircumcised. The gift was given. 
the ring, well, what's kind of a ring? But anyway, the circumcision, that just conjures up all kinds of things. Anyway, remember, I'm not responsible for anything I say today, all right? Oh, it's like, whoa, where was your mind going? Anyway, the sign of circumcision was, was he wasn't made right with God when he was 99. He was made right with God when he was in his mid-80s. This was just a, a wedding ring. So this was just a symbol, right? So that's what Paul's gonna say. <coughs> so he says, is this blessedness, verse nine, only for circumcised or is it also for uncircumcised? Well, we've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited as righteousness right back here when he was 86, right? So under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? He says, it was not after, it was before. And he said, he received circumcision back here when he's 99 as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still way back here, uncircumcised. So then what that means is he's a father of all who believe but have not been circumcised, Gentiles in order that the righteousness might be credited to them, just like it was to Abraham. <laughs> and he's also the father of the circumcised, way over here, who not only are circumcised, but they also follow in the footsteps of faith. If you only have the sign, but you don't have the faith, you're not really married. Okay, and so, it, so the next question is, if you're a Jew in the first century, well, how does the law work then? I thought we were getting into the kingdom because we had this gift of, we were circumcised as a sign, and then we've followed the law. And that's why we're in the kingdom and the Gentiles are gonna be destroyed. And Paul says, wait a second. Abraham was made right with God here over 400 years before the law came. The law's not gonna invalidate the relationship that was here. And he says it's a good thing because if our relationship with God was based on keeping the law, we'd all be in trouble. That's what we learned back in chapter two. So he says, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world and the kingdom. It was through the righteousness that comes by faith. And for if those who depend on the law are heirs, and faith means nothing. I mean, it's either by faith or by law. It can't be both. And he says the promise of the coming kingdom, <coughs> the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. Right? The law just shows here's what we need to do, and we can't do it, and that just leads to judgment. And where there is no law, there's no transgression. Therefore, the promise that he would inherit the kingdom, it comes by faith, so it may be by grace, and it may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who have the law, the Jews, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham, like Gentiles. He's the father of us all. As it's written, and this is a quote from chapter 17, when he received, Genesis 17, when he received the sign of circumcision, as it's written, I have made you a father of many nations. And of course, this was both true literally and spiritually. Like Abraham was the father, not only of Israel, but the father of the Arab nations through, through, Ishmael, uh, through Ishmael and the father, uh, the, uh, father of the Edomites through, uh, his, you know, through Esau later on and so on. But he's also the father of all who have come to God through Christ, through faith. He said, he is our father in the sight of God, whether you're Jew or Gentile. 
uh, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into hope, into being things that were not, right? So, that, so that's the passage. Paul is really speaking to these questions that whenever he shares the gospel, it's like, wait a second, that's not how the story goes. And his job is to show, hey, this, this story of a crucified Messiah, yes, it was a surprise ending. We didn't see it coming. But when you look back in the scriptures, it was there all along. It was just like hidden in plain sight. Right? So what I want to do today is from this passage, I want to ask two really important questions for our lives that flow out of it. All right? And so there in your note sheet... You have a section called The Gospel of God, two key questions. And here's the first question. The first question is, how big is your story? How big is your story? So what we've seen today is that one of the problems with the the Jewish story in the first century is that their story wasn't actually big enough that God's story that he was telling through the nation of Israel was much bigger than they understood. The way they saw the story is one day God's coming back. He'll forgive our sins. Messiah will come. We will conquer the world. The kingdom of God will come for Israel alone. And the Gentiles will be either subjugated or destroyed, depending on different versions of the story. And Paul's saying, no, you don't understand your story is so much bigger. The reason God chose Abraham and chose Israel was to rescue the whole world through the coming of the Messiah. Your story is just too small. The story is actually much bigger. But here's the thing, is that I think that for us as 21st century Christ followers, that often for us, our story, the story that we tell, of what God is up to is way too small. That his story, the story that we enter into when we come to Jesus is so much bigger than we often realize. Like for example, I don't know if you remember earlier in this series, very in the early days, I asked you this question, because it's called the gospel of God. I said, hey, if someone came to you and said, hey, could you tell me the gospel? I said, the chances are many of us, if not most, would say something like this. Well, the gospel is that Jesus came and died for my sins so that I could be forgiven and go to heaven and live with him forever when I die. And if you were here, then you remember, what I said is it's not so much that it's wrong as it's just a severely truncated version of the gospel. It's almost a caricature of the gospel because the gospel is so much bigger. The gospel of God is so much bigger. The gospel of God is about starts at the, at the creation of our race and it ends with the recreation of the human race at the end of time. It starts with the first creation in Genesis 1 and 2. It ends in the story of the new creation in, Gen, in Revelation 21 and 22. The story of the gospel is big. It's huge. It's epic. It's how, through, how God through the nation of Israel prepared the way so a Messiah could come that one day could restore all of creation and catch us, create a whole new race of people 
that would live with him forever where all the old barriers and prejudices that have separated our race from day one would be destroyed and there would be this one new people of God, this new kingdom who would live with him forever. Like, let me give you, you know, let me give an example. I want you to turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter three. Can we turn to Colossians three? In Colossians chapter three, one of the things I said early in this series is from time to time we'll be leaving Romans and going to Paul's other writings to kind of to see like, like using Romans as a window into his whole worldview. But in Colossians chapter three, um, we come to a passage where kind of Paul is telling us what the end game is about. Like why did Jesus come? And in verse 11, he says here, um, he's talking about this new community of Jesus We'll start in verse 10. Let's go to verse nine. He says, do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self, your old humanity, who you were before Jesus and with its practices. And you put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of what? Right, so, so the gospel is about how God is renewing our race to be like our creator again. And then he says here in this new community, there is no what? There's no Gentile or Jew. This old distinction is going away. And he says, there's neither uh, circumcised or uncircumcised. There's, not, there's no longer barbarian. And so in the Roman Empire, like the tribes and the peoples that lived on the outskirts, like the, like the Germans who were like kind of this, you know, fierce and backward uh, kind of people of the trees, like they were called the, the barbarians, people that weren't part of Roman civilization. He says we're the barbarians and the Scythians. And these are people that would be from like wild tribes of warriors that were very uncivilized. And Paul says it's, it's, the gospel's in creating a community where it doesn't matter what your background is from, whether you're Jew or Gentile, circumcised or not, whether you're civilized or wild country people. And he says, uh, he says slave or free, social economics no longer matter, but Christ is all and in all. He says, this is the gospel, that God is rescuing a rebel race and he's creating a new people for a new creation. This is the story that we're a part of. And so when you come to Jesus, what we find, we come to Jesus, we, enter in, we discover our own story. And our story is much bigger than we've often realized. That our story, for those of us who are Gentile Christians, our story is the story of Israel. And you say, why is this so important? Can I tell you this? The size of our lives is always determined by the size of our story. That we are created as human beings to live on story. As a teacher, if you've ever taught, you know this. For Joel or I, we know this. At the moment, if we're teaching, and I begin to tell you a story, the mood in the room changes. There's something about the way we're wired, the way God has designed us. We've, he's designed us for story. And when our story is small, our lives are small. And when our story is big, we grow to the size of our story. And so if our story is simply that the gospel is that, hey, God sent Jesus, died for my sins, so I can go to heaven when I die, it's not that it's wrong. 
It's just, it's a very small story. And it doesn't leave, lead to transformed lives. But when we come to Jesus and we understand, we step, we step into this epic story that started before creation and it ends in new creation. We begin to understand that if you're a follower of Jesus, you no longer are simply a natural person. You are a supernatural person. That you have been actually chosen before time. And then there was a time when the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to who Jesus was and he called you and you were called by God in time. And then you discover that you've been gifted by God for this time. That it's no, it's no like chance of the draw that you've been born at this time, in this era, at this point in human history. And Acts 17 it says that God has decided, he has determined the boundaries where we live and so on. That every one of us here as followers of Jesus, we've been chosen before time, called in time, and gifted for this time. That is our story. And once we begin to understand our story, we can grow up and grow into our story. If we are living a small story, we will live small lives. If we don't understand our story, we'll get easily distracted by the things of life as we try to make sense of our life and find things that give our life meaning. But when we understand our story, it changes our lives and we begin to grow into it. You know, it's no secret right now is that there's more anxiety and mental health problems in the United States than ever before. You know that, right? You know that in, in our younger generation, the problems of anxiety, the problem of suicide is off the charts. And you say, why is this? It's because we've lost our story. We were created for story, and we were created to be part of a story, and we have, we've now raised a generation, we've all been raised in this story that there is no meaning in life, there is no purpose in life, there is no God, we're all the result of billions of years of random access, there's no right, there's no wrong, you just have to figure it out. When you've been raised on that story, you go anemic. When you're raised on that story, you're looking out for anything that will give you meaning in life. When you're raised on that story, there is nothing to give you strength to persevere. There's no meaning to suffering. There's no purpose in life. There is no destiny. And we begin to wither as a race. Then when we were created to, be, to play an important role in God's epic story, and as followers of Jesus, we need to rediscover our story. And so much of that story is in the story of Israel. And that leads to the next question. There in your note sheet is how well do you know your story? How well do you know our story? What we've seen today is that Israel didn't understand their own story, and that was leading to huge problems. They missed the Messiah when it came because it, it didn't fit. It was like they were saying, like, hey, that's not how the story goes. And as a result of that, they missed the bigger story that they were called to be a part of. And this can happen to us, too. We can miss our own story. And often, as modern-day Christ followers, we 
act as if the story, our story begins when Jesus was born. And the reality is, Jesus was being born into a story that had been going on long, long before him, that the whole story was leading up to. It's interesting, I think as you know, Christians, we know that the story, right? Here's our story. We know that a lot of things happened before Jesus, like two thirds of the book. Like we know that, but we kind of look at it like this. Yeah, but that, that, didn't, that story didn't really work out so well. So we're just gonna pick up the story when Jesus was born. That's our story. When Jesus was born, we're gonna pick it up from there. And there's no question that we can figure out a lot of the story from that. I mean, if I were to give you a, a great novel, like one of Dostoevsky's novels or something, and say, okay, here's this huge novel. I want you to start, I want you to start reading two-thirds of the way in. Well, chances are you can figure out some of the story, right? You can learn a lot. If you were to walk into a great epic drama, like in a movie theater, a great epic, maybe it's like Lord of the Rings or something. You've never read Lord of the Rings. And you were to, you were to go into the very first movie of Lord of the Rings, and, but you were to come in two-thirds of the way through the movie. Well, chances are you can figure out, yes, yeah, this is something about a ring and, you know, uh, like there's a lot you can figure out. Oh, Gandalf, he's a good guy. Frodo, he's a, orcs are bad. You know, like you, there's a lot you can figure out, but you're going to miss the depth of the story, aren't you? And yet that's exactly how we do it. We pick up our Bibles and we start reading just the final third. But what's called crazy is that the New Testament writers in that final third are constantly referring to the first two thirds. Because for, the, for Jesus, there was no final third. He grew up with the first two thirds. What we call our Old Testament was the Bible of Jesus and the early church. And they're constantly saying, now that, now that Messiah has come, we can finally understand what the first two thirds were actually saying and we become part of this larger story. It's interesting, uh, when you think of Christmas, one of my, I don't know what it calls, pet peeve, I don't know. Remember, I'm not responsible for what I'm saying, all right? Okay, so if this doesn't come out, this is not in my notes, so this is just coming to me right now, so we'll see how this flies. But one of the, the challenges or the irritants to me is that when we tell the Christmas story, it's such a small story, right? Have you noticed how even non-believers often love Christmas, right? There's nothing very threatening about the baby in the, he's so cute, he's so cuddly, right? But it's like, hey, this is part of a larger story, right? And so often when we tell the Christmas story, it, it gets truncated in this small little story about a baby and a manger and some sheep and some wise men and some angels over the, and it's just this little story, right? This cute little story. But do you know when, when the New Testament writers, when they write about the story of the birth of Jesus, that's not how they tell the story. There's two places where the story is told, in Matthew and in Luke's gospel. And in Matthew's gospel, you know how he starts the story of Christmas? He starts with a genealogy of the history of Israel, starting with Abraham. 
He goes from Abraham to David, King David, there was 14 generations. And from David to the exile, there was 14 generations. And from the exile to the Messiah, there's 14 generations. And if you're a Jew and you're reading that genealogy, you're not reading it like we do, which is like, oh, this, skip this part. <laughs> with every, if you're a Jew, with every name, you're remembering the story. Every name is like, yes, yes, yeah. And by the time you get to the end of the chapter where the angel is telling Joseph, hey, don't divorce Mary, this is from the Holy Spirit. By the time you get there, you have followed the story of Israel and you're understanding it in context. And when you read the Gospel of Luke, he doesn't start with the birth of Jesus, he starts with the birth of John the Baptist. And he starts with the prophecies of Isaiah. And he starts by, with, uh, uh, after Zechariah, uh, his, you know, the, John the Baptist's father, after John's born, he says, yeah, that's it. His name is John and his mouth is open. He begins praising God for the story of Israel. He sets the birth of his son within the larger story of Israel and the prophets. And when Mary goes to visit Elizabeth, his wife, and she breaks out in this beautiful song, She's telling the story of Israel and setting the birth of her son and the larger story of Israel. And when you understand that story, all of a sudden, when angels are appearing to shepherds, you're recognizing this is something historic in the story. This has never happened before in the history of our story. That something epic is happening and we understand how epic it is because we're seeing it in the story. And so the question I have for you is how well do you know your own story? This is why the apostle Paul is constantly setting the story of the Messiah in the story of Israel. Like, let me give you an example. Take your Bibles and turn, turn, turn to Romans chapter one. I want you to see how Paul starts this. And now that I've kind of set this up, I think this will hit you with a new force. You know, Paul starts this, this letter in chapter one, and I want you to, to notice how he reframes the conversation about Jesus. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, what this whole series is about. But notice what he says, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. You see, he wants to set this up that, hey, this may be different, a different ending than you thought, but this is actually the fulfillment of your story, Israel. And he said, this story is regarding his son, who has to his, as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. Yes, Israel, you got that right. The Messiah was gonna come from the line of David, but he was crucified. You weren't expecting that. You don't think he is the Messiah because he was crucified and said he conquered. He said, yes, but who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus, Messiah, our Lord. See, he's reason. this story may be ending differently than you thought, but there's no question that he's the Messiah because he rose from the dead. Okay? He is retelling the story of Israel and saying, you had the first part right, but you missed how the story 
was supposed to end. It was prophesied all along. And so what Paul is doing all through Romans, you watch it, they're always going back into the story of Israel to show how this is the fulfillment of the story. Like look with me on your note sheet in Romans 15. As Paul gets to the end of this letter, after laying out this whole gospel of God and how it's a fulfillment of the story, he says, for everything that was written in the past, and he's talking about the first two thirds of our Bible, the Old Testament, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. He says, if you don't understand your own story, it's gonna be hard to be confident how the story is gonna end. So the question I have is, how well do you know your story? How well do you know this first two thirds of our Bible? And what I wanna do is, I wanna give you a challenge here or, and, and some practical suggestions. You know, we're, we're heading towards a new year. And at the start of every year, that's, it's common for us to make resolutions or plans for the new year. And so I would guess that for many of you, as you approach the new year, one of the things you're gonna be saying is, God, how do you want me to spend time in your word this year? How do you want me to grow in understanding the story? And the Lord may lead you in different ways. I don't think there's one way to do this. Some of you may say, I really feel like what God's calling me to do this year is to go deep with some some key passages of scripture. Like I'm gonna memorize Psalm 23 this year. I'm gonna memorize uh, the first half of Colossians 15. I'm gonna memorize parts of the Sermon on the Mount. That, that, what I'm gonna, the way I'm gonna invest in the word this year, I'm gonna go deep. And that's awesome, right? But others of us may say, hey, we feel like the Holy Spirit's calling us to read through the Bible, to learn our story better. And so I'm not saying one is better. I'm saying, but if the Holy Spirit's calling you that way, I wanna give you a couple practical tips of how to approach this, okay? Here's practical tip number one. Buy a good study Bible, okay? If you do not own a good study Bible, you need to get one. I call a study Bible a pastor in a box, all right? So if you've never read a study Bible, a study Bible just has a normal Bible there, but it has like an intro to every every book that tells you who it's written to, why it was written, and so kind of like a pastor would do, setting up a message, right? And then throughout the, throughout the, uh, the letter or the book or whatever is being written, there'll be notes on it to give you some teaching tips on how to follow the story that's going along. And so if you don't have a good study Bible, this would be a great thing to put on your Christmas wish list for your friends and family, and you can put links there or whatever. Now, <clears throat> there's several, there are many different kinds of study Bibles. Um, a couple that I like, uh, the, the New International, it's called the Life Application Bible. It's more application-oriented. That's great. Uh, the, just the regular New International NIV Study Bible is good. Uh, a great study Bible is the ESV, the English Standard ESV Study Bible. The downside is you have the ESV, and so if you're used to using, if you're used to using the New International and you bring it to church, you, know, you, you have to have two Bibles that way. Um, but it's a great, a great study Bible. Um, and so some, some study Bibles are gonna be more academic oriented, some are gonna be more application oriented. But if you don't own a study Bible and you wanna know God's word, you need to get one, right? So that's, that's a number one. The second thing is, is that there's a great uh, app that I'm sure most of you know, or many of you know, but if you don't, I wanna, it's called YouVersion, right? So it's YouVersion, I'm sure many of you have it. Um, and uh, it's a free app that you can get in your app store. 
Um, but uh, when you look on version, first of all, you get a ton of Bibles for free. You can look all kinds of versions, so that's great. But it also has Bible reading programs. Some are topical and so on, but many of them are read through the Bible in a year. And in these particular, I'm gonna recommend a couple because some of these Bible programs read through the Bible in a year, they're associated with a, uh, with a, a group that helps you understand kind of uh, what you're reading uh, called the Bible Project. Right? So if you're, if you're having, these are the Bible Project people, and they produce short little animated videos to help you understand what a book is about. So if you, there on your note sheet, I put two of my favorite read through the Bible programs on you version. There's one, uh, one story that leads to Jesus. The second one is called the full story from beginning to end. They approach reading the, and getting through the Bible the whole year. You look at both of them, but both of them are associated with the Bible project people. So when you actually go for your daily reading, it will have, a, we'll call it a devotional, and it'll give you a little bit of a, hey, here's the story of Leviticus, because how many of us have said, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year, and then we stop in Leviticus, right? We, f- we, feel, we feel led by the Holy Spirit in January to read through the Bible, and then we feel led by the Spirit to stop reading when we get to Leviticus in February. So, um, but if you have just a short introduction to kind of how the book works and what it's intended, because the reality is the whole Bible is one story that leads us to Jesus, but you often need some help in just kind of making those connections. And so the question I want to leave you with then is, 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 like, how big is your story? And this is a challenge I want to give to you, that, that we only grow to the size of our story. If your story is a small story, you will live a small life. But as we understand how epic, and I choose that word very carefully, because when you read the Apostle Paul, do you notice he cannot say anything normal? He always says things like all, every, uh, overcoming, superabundance, overflowing. That we, we have been born into, born again into an epic story. And the larger our story, the larger our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. So Father, we come today and we just pray that you'd be opening our eyes to the story that we are part of and we discover we're part of when we come to you. This epic story that starts before the first creation and leads to past the the new creation that's coming. And I pray, Lord, that that you would be leading us by your spirit as to how to better understand that story so that we can live a life that matters for eternity. We will not be distracted by lesser things because we're living for a greater story. We have meaning, we have purpose, we have destiny. We can say no to lesser things because we realize what's at stake. And so Lord, we pray that as we worship you now, you would begin to stir our hearts to this greater story that we've been called to be a part of. And I pray this in your name, amen.